My name is Scott Gilliland. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Lover's Lane. Uh, you are in Thrive Worship. Reagan and I are the co-pastors here in Thrive. We're glad that you're with us as we are continuing in a sermon series called Fixer Upper, uh, where we've been talking about each week uh, a, a different sin or a struggle and what the you know more faithful option is that we can live into as, as people trying to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Um, and so this week, I want to talk about uh, a couple of studies that I, that I found. Uh, in 2014, some researchers in China conducted a study uh, to try and understand social media trends better uh, and, and to understand specifically how emotion and social media can be linked. Uh, so it was at Beihong University in Beijing, China. Uh, the researchers, they focused on trying to find connections between how we feel about uh, items that we're sharing or posting about online uh, and then how likely they are to then go viral, how likely are others to share them um, who are our friends online, right? And uh, they found that uh, sadness for instance, is a really bad motivator, not very likely to have things go viral if you post about um, something that, that is making you feel sad. Um, disgust is not much better when you're disgusted by something. Joy is a pretty good motivator. Joy works well if you're really happy about something. Uh, but almost nothing gets our blood pumping and the share button smashing as much as anger does when we feel angry about something in the news or in our lives. And it doesn't just spread through social media feeds, it also spreads through us, right? There was another uh, study, same year, Princeton University, uh, they observed over 700,000 Facebook users tracked their, um, tracked their, their uh, data on Facebook. And what they did was they, they altered their, um, what they would see in their feeds uh, to become more positive or more negative. And what they found is as they, as they altered these 700,000 plus people's feeds to appear more negative, they were seeing more of the negative stuff from their friends and family that these users then began to post more negatively themselves. Uh, and so it's not really just about what we share. It's also about like how we feel. It, it clearly had this sort of impact on their own emotions and the, the way they express themselves publicly. And this might seem like common sense, right? That who we surround ourselves with, the kind of emotions that surround us has an effect on us. But the fact that anger seems to really be this one that's on the forefront, especially in the internet age, something we should be paying attention to. I myself decided to conduct a little, uh, little uh, study this past week, and I posted on Facebook, uh, what's making you angry today, right? And I said, no, nothing too big or too small. And I got like over 70 responses, which like never happens unless it's a picture of me and Andy, right? Um, it never happens. Nobody cares that much about my Facebook usage, right? And so, uh, and, and the, here's the thing I want to say about that, is that they, they, the responses ran the gamut. Some people were, were frustrated by, admittedly, you know, smaller things, like being stuck at the DM. Although, trust me, that can be infuriating when you're in the middle of it. Um, then there were a lot of really like, okay, these are important things to be mad about. People angry about, um, you know, mistreating children or angry about abuse against women or, or angry about, you, you can pick any number of um, social issues of the day, uh, things that make you angry. It was probably there in that feed um, or, or like a mean manipulative bosses that are ruining my life, like big stuff, right, that people are talking about. So I want to say this from the beginning. I think a lot of times uh, we talk about anger in the church, and we talk about ways to kind of distract ourselves from it or to just eliminate it, and that's not what I'm going to do today. 
uh, because I think that there are a lot of things that make us angry that should. Um, anger is kind of like when we talked about um, pride a few weeks back. Anger is one of those things that sometimes can be a good thing and sometimes can be a really destructive thing. And I want us to talk about that. Today what I really want us to wrestle with is this question. How can my faith help me understand my anger? How can my faith help me understand my anger? Because I think anger is one of those things that we're kidding ourselves if we think that we can live without it. And I don't know that God wants us to live without any anger at all. But I also think God wants us to live a life um, that is healthy and, and healing. So... Now, we're going to turn our attention this morning to Mark chapter 11, the gospel of Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Uh, this is a story that maybe you've read, maybe you haven't. Just to set the stage, Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, the holy city where he lives, and uh, he's approaching this, and it's going to be like the sort of the, he's ramping up for the big final conclusion to the gospel story. So this is going to be his last week of ministry here on earth. And it begins in verse, chapter 11, verse 1. And before we read that, we're going to pray over our scripture this morning and invite the Holy Spirit to be a part of this time together. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks for this space and this community of faith that we get to call home. God, we give you thanks for uh, your servant, um, Mark, for writing down a story that he had told so many times before to so many new believers so God, as we approach these words again, some of us for the first time, some of us for the 700th time, God, allow these words to speak new life into us, allow us to hear something, see something new this morning that it might change the way that we live. All this we pray in the name of your son, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Okay. So this is a story that I think is going to help us talk about anger because this is where Jesus is really wrestling with some anger. I think you'll know what I mean. When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Just say this, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here immediately. Oh, okay, thanks, Jesus. We'll just tell them that. They went away and found a colt tied near a door outside in the street. As they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, what are you doing, undying this colt? They told them what Jesus had said, and they allowed them to take it. Okay, shut me up. It worked. Good job. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna! In the highest. Then he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The word of God for the people of God. Let us say, thanks be to God. Man, talk about angry. Am I right? Woo, calm down, Jesus. Right? That is an angry, angry king. Right? No. I know. I know, you're like, Scott, what does this have to do with anger? You read the wrong scripture. I did not read the wrong scripture. It has happened before, actually, in a sermon once. That's a funny story, but not one to tell today. Um, not the wrong scripture. That's exactly what I meant to read. Sometimes there is more than meets the eye. 
And if we stopped right there in Mark 11, we might think that this is a lovely little story about Jesus being celebrated as he rides into Jerusalem. Because on the surface level, that's what it is. We've heard this story, if you've come to church before, on Palm Sunday, right? This is the time when the kids normally march through with their little palm fronds, and we all get to take pictures, and yay, you know, and we sing Hosanna. And it's great, and it's fun, it's a party, it's the, it's the kickoff to the Holy Week. It's, you know, we know Easter's coming, right? And so certain people certainly come to church then. Um, anyways... So you've heard the story before, maybe, and you're thinking, Scott, this is not a story about anger. And yet, if you read the very end there, when it says, then he entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple, and when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. What it doesn't say there, that it could have said, as he went into the temple, He looked around at everything and said, I'll take care of you later. I'll see you tomorrow. As it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. See, he doesn't say it explicitly, but Jesus in this scene is livid. He is furious about what he finds in the holy city of Jerusalem. Because what he's looking for in Jerusalem is the the deceit of faithfulness in the world. Right? He is looking for the chosen people of God, the protectors of the faith, the priests and the scribes, the people who really get it. But that's not what he finds. And it's so much worse than I think he even imagined. So much worse than it should have been that he goes back and the rest of chapter 11 is very different than the start of chapter 11. Do you want to read it? Have I intrigued you enough? The reality is we follow a Savior that we're going to find this morning is an angry Savior. There are times when Jesus gets really mad. And I think it's important for us as people who wrestle with anger to understand what it is that makes Christ angry, what it is that Christ does with that anger, And how that can be a model for us to understand our own anger and how we can harness it for good. Yes, I said good. Anger can be good for ourselves and the world around us. So let's keep reading the rest of the story, right? On the following day when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see whether perhaps he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. It's in the Bible. (laughs) And his disciples heard him, right? Like he said it kind of loud, like he was mad. Okay, word of God for the people of God, right there. Um, So we're going to stop there for right now. Reagan and I have been married for almost eight years. Um, Eight blissful uh, years of marriage, right, Reagan? Yeah, she agreed. And um, as you get to know each other in marriage uh, or any longer-term relationship, you get to see not only the really awesome parts of their personality, you also get to see some of the uglier parts of their personality, right? Married couples, long-term relationship couples say, amen. You guys are not being honest enough. (laughs) So Reagan has learned about me um, that there are times... When I am angry or frustrated or crotchety or just being a jerk, when um, what I'm mad about this is not the issue at all. The issue is 
my belly because I'm hungry. I suffer from hanger. Anybody else suffer from hanger in the room? If your partner suffers from hanger, raise your hand real high. That's a lot more hands. Um, we got something fun to talk about on the ride home. So, Reagan knows that when I'm really upset, sometimes the first thing out of her mouth is, do you want a snack? And it's not even like being mean about it. Because many times I'm like, yes, I would like a snack. That would be great, right? I am a toddler. Like, I need my fruit snacks, right? Um, but anger's a real deal. Is that what Jesus is suffering from here in Mark chapter 11? Is he walking up to a fig tree, hungry, ready for breakfast, thinking like, yeah, I could go for some figs right now. And there's no figs, and he's just hangry, and he curses this poor, this poor little fig tree. It didn't do nothing wrong. You know, can you imagine me in the fig tree, and you're hearing the Bible just went to print, and you're like, I heard I made it in. I can't wait to tell all the other fig trees about this. They're going to be so jealous. And you open up, you're like, shoot, that was Jesus that day? I should have had figs, right? Um, I feel bad for this fig tree. Is that what this is about? Is this really a story about a fig tree? Because that is like the silliest thing to put in the Bible, right? No, it's not about a fig tree. Fig tree story is kind of a symbolic story. Not kind of, it is a symbolic story. Um, whether or not Jesus cursed a fig tree, the cursing of the fig tree itself was symbolic. Because the tree, this fig tree, this kind of body, if you will, looked really healthy. It was in leaf. And if you understand fig trees, you know that when a fig tree is in leaf, it's giving you a sign that figs are on the way, right? That it should be bearing fruit. So Jesus, being the amateur botanist that he is, walks up to a fig tree in leaf, and he expects there to be fruit there, but there's not. There's this body that looks healthy, looks fruitful, and yet it's just as barren as any other old dead tree. Jesus is about to walk into a temple. Some could say a church is like a body, kind of like a tree. He's going to find this thing, this tree, this body, this people who look really healthy, look like good religious people, look like fruit-bearing people, and yet they're just as barren as any old dead tree. So it's not really about hanger. It's about setting up what's about to come next. Jesus is not only going to find one barren tree this day, he's going to find two. So hangry Jesus then goes into Jerusalem, right? He's had no breakfast. He's just cursed a tree. Days off to a good start. He enters the temple, the temple he had been in the night before. And, he, and, <clears throat> and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, and I want you to hear this the way that it would have been spoken. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you it a den of robbers. Now that's not how we're used to hearing Jesus talk, right? The kids in the room are very awake right now. If that makes you uncomfortable to hear, you're not alone. Because when the chief priests and the scribes heard it, the Bible says, they kept looking for a way to kill him. For they were afraid of him. Because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. We're going to stop there. For a moment. 
So Jesus walks into the temple, and to understand why he has this reaction, he'd been there the night or the day before, he'd seen what was happening, he comes back and he immediately starts cleaning house, flipping tables, yelling at people, not allowing anyone to do anything. He is freezing this, this whole place. No one's allowed to move. Why does he respond like this? To understand, you gotta, you got to put yourself in the shoes of someone who, who like Jesus, follows the Jewish tradition in the first century. And the Jewish tradition practice was you'd go to the temple. If you were a regular follower of the, of the Jewish faith, you'd go to the temple for really important days, high holy days. You'd also go there to offer sacrifices. Blood sacrifice was a really important thing in the Jewish tradition. I know it makes us uncomfortable today, but that's just the reality of what Jesus is walking into. People who believe that it, whenever they are out of step with God, when they believe they have committed sins that have harmed their relationship with God in any way, they would then have to bring an offering of an animal sacrifice to God that was in keeping with however broken their relationship had become. So the greater the sin, the greater the sacrifice, right? This is classic Jewish theology in Jesus' day. The problem is um, Jesus walks in and he sees these tables set up with people exchanging money. What does it mean when it says money changers? Here's what was happening. Let's say you're somebody who you had really messed up. And you were afraid for your soul if you didn't bring an animal sacrifice. And so you go to the temple and you're thinking, okay, I know I messed up, but I'll bring some money and, um, and I'll see what I can do. And you go over to the table and they say, oh, for what you just described to me, you're going to need a fatted calf. And guess what? price of calves just up. It's going, to char- it's going to cost you about 10 times more than it would have yesterday. Ah, I'm sorry, it's my last fatted calf. What are you going to do? Worry about your soul or buy my calf? And so you'd have these people who were already poor, being shaken upside down practically, turned over, turned their pockets out to give whatever money they had over to these people in power who were convincing them that their salvation was linked to how much money they could spend on animal sacrifices. People terrified, carrying guilt and shame, walking into this house of worship, being extorted and oppressed because they were in a position to be extorted and oppressed. Do you understand why Jesus is angry? By the way, the, the money changers, those are people doing currency exchanges for pilgrims who had traveled from across the world to come to that temple. Again, charging exorbitant rates for people who were simply trying to find God in that place. Do you understand why Jesus is furious? Don't you want Jesus to be mad? Would it have been a better story if Jesus had walked in, seen this kind of stuff taking place and gone, Geez, that's terrible. Someone should say something. I mean, at least it'd be peaceful. At least it'd continue to, to, to function the way it always had. You know, certainly wouldn't want to make a mess in church. Wouldn't want to make anybody uncomfortable. Is that the kind of Jesus that we desire? Or do we need a Savior who's willing to turn over some temple tables? Who's willing to make a mess? Who's willing to yell at the right people? To call them out because injustice has no place in the kingdom of God. One thing I want to say this morning, and it's not me saying it, it's Mark chapter 11, Jesus in the temple. 
when you see injustice in the world around you, and you can take that to mean something as big or as small as you want, when you see injustice in your family, when you see injustice in your streets, when you see injustice in your community, when you see injustice in your world, and that makes you angry, congratulations, you share the heart of God. Nothing makes God angry like injustice. Because the kingdom of God is not a home for injustice. The house of God is not a home for injustice. And if you think, if we think that we can follow a Savior who is simply nice and kind and sweet and never makes anybody ever uncomfortable and always just does whatever keeps the peace. Y'all, if that's who we're here to worship, I want my money back. I got other places I could be on a Sunday morning. Amen? I need a God who gets furious when the poor and the oppressed and the downtrodden are held down by people in power. I need a God who is furious when a house of worship becomes a house of of making money off the backs of people who don't deserve it. I need a God who gets furious when wrong things are wrong and who wants right things to be right. Don't you? I need a God who cares about this stuff. We need a God who cares about this stuff, who cares enough to flip tables in a temple. And yeah, it makes people uncomfortable. And yeah, it makes a mess. And I want you to hear me very clearly. I believe that Christians are called to be peacemakers. I believe that's a gift of the Holy Spirit. I believe it when Jesus said it was a blessing of the Holy Spirit, right? But to be a peacemaker does not mean that you keep things the way they are forever. Because the way things are in our world is broken or else the kingdom of God would already be here and I wouldn't be standing here preaching the gospel. It would be fully realized, right? To make peace means to go out and to flip tables. Thank you, but let's let's clap for the Holy Spirit because when we flip tables for God, we're not just making messes. We're not just destroying stuff for the sake of destroying things. We are creating a pathway so that things can be made right, so that peace can reign in the end. I need a God who's comfortable making a mess in a broken world. Because I don't know about you, I see around and I already see a mess. It's already been made. Here's the really good news, though. So right now, you're, you're, if your spirit's like mine, you're feeling a little agitated. You're feeling, you're like, all right, Scott, you got me. I'm angry. Good. Here's the thing. We don't get to stay here. I'm so thankful the gospel of Mark does not end with Jesus flipping tables in a temple. It doesn't. In fact, like Gospel of Mark, like this is like the middle. We got a ways to go, right? Jesus has some work to do. If all Jesus did was flip tables in a temple and yell things and make a mess, he would have been no better than every other failed rebellion that the Jews had seen time and time before. When, they, when, when he walks into Jerusalem, when he rides in on that colt, he's heralded as the king, of, the king of David, right? He's heralded as the second coming of King David. They had seen people like Jesus before. They had shouted these hosannas before. They did it for the Maccabean revolt. If you have ever read the book of Maccabees, it's in the apocryphal text of the Bible. If you're a former Catholic or you've read the Catholic Bible, go read Maccabees. It's the story of a failed Jewish rebellion. People who had anger for days, but in the end did not accomplish what they sought to accomplish. Because it turns out simply being angry and destroying things is not enough. So let's keep reading because, church, Jesus has more to offer us than just anger. In the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. 
And I want to say, like, Peter, like, Peter, you've seen this dude, like, calm a storm. Like, you're impressed by a fig tree drying up? Like, oh, geez, Peter, get with the ball game, man. I just love how he's like, the, the tree died. You know, like, yeah, dude, it's the savior of the world. I hope he can do that. Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I tell you, if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and if you do not doubt in your heart, but believe that it, what you say will come to pass, it will be done for you. So I tell you, he says, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. <laughs> he doesn't stop there. He says, when you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father in heaven may also forgive your trespasses. We're going to stop there. We've got a little bit more to go before we're done, but we're going to stop there. So um, there was an ancient scholar uh, of toxicology, like the father of toxicology. And I've said this, I've shared this quote before, but it, it fits here really well too. Um, Paracelsus was his name. And he had this statement about what makes poison that I think is really, really profound. He said, the dose makes the poison. Right? There are substances that we can consume that in small doses don't do anything or maybe even healthy. But if you take in too much, all of a sudden it becomes poisonous, harmful, toxic for you. The dose makes the poison. I think that is true about anger. A little bit of anger. A little bit of anger is a good thing. It can light a fire in us for God's kingdom. We all need a little bit of anger sometimes, but too much anger can consume us like an out-of-control wildfire. Have you ever been the victim of a wildfire, an internal wildfire before? I have. Have you ever been out of control with your anger where all it brought was destruction and rage? I know what that feels like. I know what it's like to be at a funeral for a toddler who's died from cancer. Wildfire. I know what it's like to look at global injustices and wonder how in the world are we ever going to fix poverty. Wildfire. I know what it's like to drive on Highway 75 and to flood with anger and to want nothing but death and destruction for the car that just cut me off. And I'm being kind of funny, but I'm also not, Right? Like, we got to realize we live in a culture that celebrates anger right now. And man, that wildfire is easy to consume. Out of control anger is destructive. It's destructive. When you're out of control, when that wildfire is blazing, it is nothing but destructive. It's not turning tables over in a temple. It's tearing the temple down and bringing death and destruction on everyone around. But spirit-led anger... Controlled anger, spirit-led anger is redemptive. I want to talk about that. I want to take it aside for a second and just a real practical thing that I felt like I should share this morning. Uh, talking about out-of-control anger, I want to share with you this term flooded, which I didn't know was a thing until about a year ago when Reagan and I went to this training for marriage ministry, and it actually applies to so much more than just that. Um, uh, flooded means when you get really uh, worked up in a conflict and like you, your brain stops working, right? And you like just see red, so to speak. You know what I'm talking about? So th this term flooded, this idea that like some people, when we get mad, we just get so mad, like 
like we can't even process new information. Nothing good is going to come out of that conflict or conversation. And, and what this training we went to said is that people remain flooded for roughly about 20 minutes. And if you go and do something else for even 20 minutes, that you're, like, your biometrics will readjust and you'll kind of calm down and be able to address that better. Um, man, maybe if nothing else you walk out of here today with is this, is that man, when you feel flooded, go for a run. Uh, go, go, go do something. Get, go mow the yard. Uh, go, go, maybe not drive. I, that's probably a bad idea. Um, but whenever you feel flooded, if you're like me, there's sometimes you just got to like separate for just 20 minutes and then, oh, wow, you can actually come back in, in, a, in a lot more controlled fashion. Okay, that's just a little, that's not even in my notes. I just wanted to share that because uh, that's helped me a lot in the last uh, year or so. All right, Jesus does not allow us to just sit in anger. Jesus doesn't allow himself to sit in anger and just be mad. He leaves the temple and he immediately starts preaching forgiveness. What? We just saw you make a total scene in there. And by the way, this poor fig tree is dead now. What are you talking about forgiveness, Jesus? If Jesus had just allowed himself to say mad, if he, had, if he had been consumed by that wildfire, we never would have had the triumphant conclusion of the Gospels. He would have been stuck in the temple, turning over tables as a failed rebellion that we had seen time and time again. But he chooses a different path. He chooses a spirit-led path towards forgiveness and redemption and peace. These are the things the Spirit will lead us towards, even in our anger. Jesus doesn't just flip tables to make a mess, church. He builds an open table from the broken pieces. Jesus doesn't just flip tables to make a mess. He builds an open table from the broken pieces. Sometimes things require being broken down to be rebuilt. But let me tell you, the Holy Spirit is not in the destroying business. The Holy Spirit is in the redeeming and restoring and building business. And if we think our job is to, is to be destroyers... The Spirit always asks us to go deeper than that. Jesus knows he has to go deeper than that. And so what we're going to see is Jesus going back to Jerusalem for a third time. And this is the end of chapter 11, and we're going to begin to wrap up. It says this, again they came to Jerusalem. This is the third time he's come in. First he came in celebrated as the heralded king of David. The second time he came in, he turned tables over in temples and was essentially thrown out. Third time he's going to come in, and he's going to be confronted. As he was walking in the table, the chief priests and scribes and the elders came to him and said, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do them? They're saying, Who the heck do you think you are? Right? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. He never answers questions straightforward, by the way. Jesus, he doesn't know. He's like, Oh, riddle me this, Batman. You know? Um, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Did the baptism of John come from heaven or was it of human origin? Answer me. They argued with each other. If we say from heaven, he'll say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say of human origin? They were afraid of the crowd. For all regarded John as truly a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. So this is how Mark chapter 11 ends. It ends with these Pharisees and scribes and elders trying to draw Jesus off sides, right? 
as they're trying to do. They, this is their only tactic. They're legalists by nature, so they always try to trip him up with a technicality or a tricky question. They're doing this again, right? But Jesus is not out of control. He's not raging with the wildfire. He is very focused. He's very controlled. And so he can see it for exactly what it is. And he does not allow these hanyaks to become rage-inducing distractions for him. They're like, they're, they're like gnats in his mind. They're just a minor annoyance. This is a Jesus who's hyper-focused. He's not only angry, but now he's made the turn to a position of courage. He's willing to go back into this place that he knows is going to frustrate him. He knows is going to anger him. But he moves into it with a clarity of mind that is about the redemptive work of God that Jesus sees possible in this moment. And it's important for us to hold these things in tension that Jesus steps into this final chapter, not literally, figuratively, of his life, um, both really angry and also full of grace. Because I think it's the anger within Jesus' spirit that in many ways propels him to the cross. What do I mean by that? How many of us this morning are angry about death? Are you mad that death is a reality? I am. Is anybody here angry that sin and brokenness is a reality? I am. Is anybody angry that injustice is a reality? Yeah. And yet we sit here feeling powerless to do anything about these things so often. And yet Jesus has all the power in the world. And so he's angry about death. And he's angry about sin. And he's angry about injustice. And he flips tables over. But he builds a cross and puts himself on it. He puts himself on it as an open and available universal gift of love and grace to a world that does not deserve it. Because he's so furious that death and injustice and sin are winning the day. And he refuses to allow it to carry on a second longer. Anger alone doesn't solve everything. Jesus' anger has to turn into courage so he can be about the redemptive work of God in that place of Jerusalem and for us today in Dallas, Texas, 2,000 years later. Anger alone doesn't solve everything. Going back to the study I mentioned before, and now we really are wrapping up, I promise. Uh, going back to the study I mentioned at the very beginning, did you know that there's actually one emotion? One of the studies found that there is one emotion that beats out even anger as the, the one that just seems to captivate people and it gets the most traction and it gets the most, um, the most shares and, and it even impacts the individuals the most. Do you, know, you want to know what it is? It's awe and wonder is what they called it. Awe and wonder. They said it was, it's like when people would share a story about a breakthrough in cancer research and they just said, Wow. Isn't this amazing awe and wonder? It's like when you share the image of a newborn infant as a proud grandparent. Wow, isn't this amazing? Sharing the stories of things that happened incredibly in people's lives, almost testifying online. Wow, isn't that amazing? Awe and wonder is even more powerful than anger. Jesus doesn't let us stay in anger. Jesus leads us through our anger to places of awe and wonder because the gift of the gospel and the gift of Christ is that redemption is always possible, church. Now, I don't know what is making you angry this morning. I pray that you can find courage in Christ. 
courage to flip over the tables that you see in need of flipping. Courage to build open tables from those broken pieces. Courage to live unhindered by rage-inducing distractions. Say, get behind me. Courage to follow the Spirit into the redemptive work of God. I don't know what's got you angry this morning. I imagine there's a good amount of anger in every heart in this room. I don't know what's got you angry this morning. I can't possibly know, but I do believe that God knows your anger in a way that I never could. God knows what it's like to be harassed or abused or bullied or beaten. God knows what it's like to feel neglected, to feel unloved and unwanted. God knows what it's like to be insulted. God knows what it's like to grieve the loss of a loved one. God understands that anger in an intimate way that I never could. And I trust that God can meet us in our anger, meet us in our anger, and help us to harness that fire inside, not to be consumed by it, but instead to set our lives on fire to be about the redemptive work of the Holy Spirit because church, hope is always possible and redemption is always possible. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks this morning. God of justice and God of power, thank you for stepping into a world where things had gone so wrong, for naming it and for doing something about it. God, thank you for flipping tables in a temple making us uncomfortable, asking us to question whether or not what's happening is right. God, may our houses of worship be places of prayer and uplifting. God, may our streets be filled with your justice. May we care for the poor and the oppressed and the downtrodden not in prayer and word, but in action as well. God, whatever personal anger we're wrestling with this morning, we open ourselves to you. We're not sure that we want to hear anything from you because maybe we're angry at you, God. But we trust that you are big enough and strong enough to take it that you've been in angry places of life, that you know how it feels. And your desire is to lead us through our anger to redemption and hope and peace and joy. God, help us to forgive. Help us to forgive you, to forgive each other and to forgive ourselves. Light a fire in us, God. And only allow us to be consumed by your Holy Spirit. All of this we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus the Christ, who redeems all things.